0: This episode of Ophthalmology Off The Grid is sponsored by Centurion from Alcon. Open, outspoken, it's Ophthalmology Off The Grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. By the year 2020, presbyopia will affect two billion people worldwide, presenting a unique challenge to eye care providers. In this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, Dr. George Waring IV discusses the enormous opportunity to help those with this ubiquitous condition and shares insights into how he currently educates and treats presbyopic patients. Tune in for this State of the Union Address, Presbyopia Edition. Today we have with us Dr. George Waring IV, a great surgeon and a probably even better friend of mine from South Carolina and George is going to be talking to us today about presbyopia. Actually, this is kind of the State of the Union address uh, for presbyopia, and I couldn't think of a better person to talk to than George Waring, someone who's really been um, crafting this this micro subspecialty of presbyopia correction, not only lens-based, but um, looking at a lot of different technologies that are going to help patients um, who have lost their near vision and are frankly quite disturbed by that. So, George, without further ado, thank you for coming on the program today, and I'd love to get your thoughts on on where things are now and maybe where things are going.
1: Hey, Gary. It's great to be here, and thanks for the opportunity uh, to speak. I love the format, and I think this is just great. And, you know, the opportunity with Presbyopia is is a big one, and um, when we think about this in terms of how many people can we help, uh, this We want to think in terms of, um, uh, well, demographics, simply 2 billion people will be presbyopic in four years worldwide. So in the year 2020, um, there are going to be 2.1 billion presbyopes, and everybody's got two eyes, so that's 4 billion uh, eyes that we can help. And so in terms of opportunity to help people, it's big, I mean... Everybody knows this is a ubiquitous disorder. You know, when we speak to uh, industry about where are the opportunities, you want to think about areas to meet. Um, you know, macular degeneration, dry eye, uh, cataracts have all gained um, uh, uh, or have all been an important part of the um, ophthalmic industry for for all the great reasons. But presbyopia has. Gained a lot of traction in the last few years in terms of interest, um, and mostly because this is a real issue.
0: No, you're exactly right. And it's interesting that, as ophthalmologists, you know, as, as we were probably both going through training, um, you know, the restore, the first restore lens came out, and I think Resume was kind of coming out around the same time. And it was—it really was sort of this novelty, and, and in my residency, wasn't really looked upon with tremendous favor, it wasn't looked upon as this is the, the holy grail. Uh, but it was something that was very interesting to me because exactly as you stated, the opportunity to help people in our industries probably, there's probably no greater opportunity in terms of numbers and desire than patients who have presbyopia. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've had um, either friends or new patients, frankly, ca- call in a panic and, and, and almost demand to be seen immediately. And, um, you know, you, you get the chart from the technician and they're Plano and they are J3 or J4. And you walk in and you're kind of scratching your head, but you, you know what the conversation is going to be. It's that they've, they've just realized that they're presbyopic. And so, I mean, I'm sure you've had those exact same interactions. It's really that first sign that, that people are no longer as young as they may look or feel. And it's sort of grappling with the idea that um, they're facing some changes that are age-related. And that can really throw people off, don't you think?
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. Particularly in patients
0: that are hyperopic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, it's funny.
1: It's hard for people to truly understand uh, how debilitating presbyopia can be. And as you just described well, we have countless patients that come in truly desperate because something's changed, and now they can't see anywhere. And this is a, a disturbing process for a subset of patients that truly feel, um, that they now have a, a visual, they're visually debilitated. And, um, and so, you know, this is something that I, I, my feeling is that we owe it to our patients to show them the opportunities to whether it's surgery or not on, on how we can help them. And, you know, it's just, it's just really interesting because, there's so many things we can do now we've kind of developed this algorithm for the treatment of presbyopia and in the past you know really it was historically monovision and, and actually that's still the most widely used procedure to address presbyopia is, is actually uh, monovision but uh, you know we've we've mapped out all the different ways we can help patients and it's quite sophisticated now and and when I compare it to other s- subspecialties that require fellowship training, I think glaucoma. <coughs> I think glaucoma is a great example. Um, you know, we and and there's more and more now with minimally invasive glaucoma surgery. More and more are our options, but there are just as many options for the correction of presbyopia
0: well, and it and like like we've stated, the correction of presbyopia does not seem like it's a foundational element that's stressed in residency. and you know, for a number of years, you know, if a patient was twenty twenty at distance I've, after cataract surgery, for example, I really just felt like I did the patient the hugest favor, and it wasn't until a patient held their hands about twelve inches or fourteen inches from their face face and said, you know, Doc, I, I can't see, why can't I see? And I, I try to explain to them what a tremendous job I just did with their cataract surgery. Now they can see off in the distance and they're not gonna have to drive with glasses. And they said, no, but I can't see. And to the patient, you know, this is a former myope, someone who was used to taking their glasses off to read. Their definition of seeing was different than my definition of seeing. And so the reality is sometimes as ophthalmologists, we we like to put people in boxes. We like to um, push the easy button. And with Presbyopia, it sounds like with your algorithm, you're trying to develop a new, uh, maybe a dashboard of easy buttons for patients who want to see differently and really going through that learning phase so that you can help guys like me and guys who are perhaps around the country. Um, really trying to figure out the right solution for different subsets of patients. So, George, with that being said, walk me through your approach to a patient who comes in, and and there's probably different subsets of patients. So, walk me through what you would do with someone who's maybe just hit presbyopia, maybe they're in their early 40s, and how that approach might be different than someone who is in their middle 50s, and then maybe someone who's a true cataract patient um, down the road in their 60s.
1: Well, you frame you frame that perfectly because that's that's the the clinically relevant scenarios that we deal with on a day to day basis, and you know it's really the two primary considerations. One is that of educating your patients on what their best options are, and the other is surgical decision making or, or just uh, clinical decision making in the management of presbyopia, and they really go hand in hand. And to that end, we. Um, uh, uh, helped describe uh, essentially a, a, a syndrome of the aging crystalline lens that is called the dysfunctional lens syndrome, and we felt like there was a real need for better understanding and characterizing these aging changes for multiple reasons. Uh, you know, about a decade ago, when we were doing uh, LASIK routinely for uh, presbyopes. Uh, in their uh, late fifties, early sixties, and then they something was happening on a regular basis, and that they were coming back five years later, tugging at your uh, at your coat, saying, "Hey, doc, my LASIK wore off." Well, we know that wasn't the case because we look under the uh, slit lamp and see that their lens had changed, and then we perform a lens-based procedure. So um, it was it was. Uh, uh, really during my fellowship, that um, Dan Dury and, and Jason Stalin and I sat down and, and we we uh, came up with the concept of of taking a what Harvey Carter had had referenced a lens as being dysfunctional, um, and and we said you know this is this is it is dysfunctional, uh, but it's syndromatic. There's a syndrome of these different functionalities that occur through someone's life in the with the internal lens. And the first stage of it is presbyopia. And the second stage is worsening presbyopia, but now we're starting to lose some uh clarity in the internal lens. And then this third stage is when that clarity is lost so much and there's so much opacity that's affecting somebody's daily activities that would warrant uh an uh, insurance-based procedure, i.e. a cataract. So the aim in this was to, number one, <laughs> help us better understand uh, how to educate our patients on does it make more sense to operate on the outside lens, the cornea or the internal lens, uh, the crystalline lens, and to help uh, ourselves and, and others better make better decisions for, in, in terms of surgical decision-making on which lens to operate on
0: and that makes, And that makes a lot of sense you know we're, we always need to think about the risks and benefits of every procedure and how it 's going to ultimately impact the patient and you know you, you really don 't want to do a procedure on someone you know in you know that for example two thousand and sixteen and then turn around in two thousand and eighteen and realize that uh, maybe you had recommended the wrong procedure, and now you 've got to do a more invasive procedure like a a lensectomy or a cataract surgery so so again. When you're when you're thinking about the early presbyope, um, or maybe you know, I think that's maybe an easier conversation. Although with the inlays, that conversation has really gotten a little bit more interesting. You know, for a long time, you know, I would tell my patients, let's do a, a monovision contact lens trial. And if you like that, then we can perhaps operate on one eye if you're a plano presbyope or, you know, both eyes, if not. And that, that was sort of my algorithm. That was my go-to. You know, we're going to see if you can tolerate monovision. If you like it, we can make it permanent. Well, now with the advent of an inlay, that conversation is actually really changing. And I just spoke to um, our both of our, our mutual friend, Bill Wiley um, and Jim Mazo at, at a dinner recently and, you know, Bill is a guy who I think we both very much respect his opinion, and uh, he's definitely a thought leader in this space as well um, as you are, being the medical monitor for um, a lot of the trials. But this seems like a technology that's really gaining some traction. So what do you, what, how has your conversation changed with your early presbyopes, um, maybe now the advent of, of inlays, or how do you think it's going to be changing, you know, moving forward?
1: This is a um, fits into the category of stage one dysfunctional lens syndrome. And now, as you've alluded to, it's not just monovision anymore, although monovision still has a place in our practice. but um, we've we, this is really a corneal-based procedure or even uh, drops in some cases. There, there are um, uh, drops that for non-surgical treatment, uh, that are actually proving to be effective as well, and so that 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 is for somebody like myself who is just on the precipice of just becoming symptomatic. Drops make a lot of sense, um, and but then if the, that becomes more manifest, then we start thinking about a corneal based solution because the internal lens is still clear, um, but it's just not focusing like as well as it used to. Then a surgical intervention may become warranted. We use advanced diagnostics to to show that the internal lens is clear, and then that gives us the confidence uh, and the patient the confidence to move forward with a corneal based procedure. Now, um, inlays, as you've alluded to, have gained traction as a uh, as a um, as a kind of top opportunity for a corneal based solution. And um, the uh, there are four really now there are five uh, corneal inlays for the surgical correction of presbyopia, um, uh, going through various stages of development and and clinical trials. But recently, there was a big win uh, for uh, ophthalmologists in the U.S. Uh, Last April, the uh, camera inlay was approved by the FDA for the surgical correction of presbyopia. So now we have advanced technology for stage one dysfunctional lens syndrome. Correction, And you kind of think of this like a premium procedure for the corneal-based solution. That, why? Because this is a technology that's relatively straightforward uh, where we implant a, 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 a small aperture corneal inlay that's been shown to be safe and effective in clinical trials um, into the classically the non-dominant eye. And it does something that, that monovision can't do. It gives you distance vision, intermediate vision, and near in the non-dominant eye. So you have a true through focus, which is how small aperture technology works. That's very, very different than a set focal point at near in your non-dominant eye because patients are more functional overall. But there are subtleties to it that are very real, i.e. you retain your stereo acuity when when, when you retain binocularity. And that's been also published in the peer-reviewed literature. So furthermore, it is resistant to the aging progression of presbyopia in that it, you're not losing that, that near point over time because of the through focus. So when you look over time, you're not losing – even though internally you're losing accommodation – the small aperture is resistant to that, and, and continues to provide that through focus. And then, lastly, it fits really nicely into when the lens does be going through the different stages into stage two or stage and or stage three, and you perform a lens based procedure. You can put in a monofocal lens and create a beautiful optical system that still gives you a depth of focus and utilize the small aperture in the
0: cornea. You know, and one thing that Bill mentioned to me, and this really makes sense because you're really talking about a hyperfocality when uh, when you're talking about a small aperture, you're elongating the depth of focus, um, the depth of field. Um, what Bill is doing, and I'd love to hear your commentary on this, is actually not going for a plano or even a minus twenty five or minus fifty. He's actually shooting for about a minus point seven five. In the eye, he's going to put the camera in, and obviously trying to get plano in the other eye, um, either uh, through refractive surgery, or some patients are, are lucky enough to, to be pl- pretty close to plano. And that really made sense to me because if you're looking at a minus 75, for example, you're really elongating the depth of field in both directions, and so you're you're going to actually improve. Um, the distance vision so that you're getting great distance vision, but you're also not working so hard to get that near vision. And, and that really, that really was something that resonated with me in your experience being a medical monitor, um, for the camera. What are your thoughts on, on being a little bit closer to maybe a minus 50, minus 75 in the eye you're going to put the camera in?
1: Yeah. Well, um, first let me just uh, clarify. So I've, I served as a, as the world surgical monitor for a number of years where we, um, uh, actually uh, looked carefully at these endpoints um, so I wasn't the medical monitor I was World, world Surgical Monitor
0: but it was in these uh, these
1: the commercialization of this outside the United States and the studies that we did outside the United States that, uh, that we identified the, the um, improvement in outcomes if we went for a little bit of myopia in the inlay eye. And it, this work really was uh, done at the Shinagawa Clinic in, um, in Tokyo, where the vast majority of these inlays were put in in Japan uh, over the last number of years, where we could learn um, how to optimize the procedures. And so we carried out a number of clinical trials there and published uh, m- uh, most of these results. Um, and this Think of it a little bit like shifting your A constant with with an IOL. I think it's the best way to think about it. And now that we've got a new optical paradigm of small aperture technology, uh, it performs differently than uh, diffractive optics or um, uh, spherical aberration induction and other ways that we can improve depth of focus. And the small aperture technology is very forgiving And that even though you have some defocus, you, you may actually give up a line or a few letters of distance to a degree, but you gain a lot of near. And, and so when you, and you can actually, um, push it a little bit more on the minus side or a little bit more on the plus side, but the happy medium where you really did not give up distance but gained near was about minus three quarters. And again, that's because of the pinhole effect.
0: Right, right. Um,
1: and just like an, an aperture and f-stop in your camera, hence the name. So it's a, a recommendation um, through the teaching. And when we taught doctors we, uh, how to do this all over the world, that was that's the recommendation from the company is minus 0.75. And that's been the teachings uh, in the United States commercial rollout since FDA approval as well.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, I think we see where the camera fits into the armamentarium um, really for those earlier uh, presbyopes or, or, you know, sort of the phase one, uh, category one dysfunctional lens syndrome. Let's move into category two. These are the patients who um, are coming in and are really having a little bit more um, lenticular. Um, issues, but not quite a cataract that would um, be considered ready for surgery based on insurance criteria. So walk me through um, your conversation you have with a patient who's who's coming in. They're maybe coming in for a LASIK evaluation um, because they they recognize something is not quite right. They want to see better without glasses. And then all of a sudden the conversation uh, becomes different than maybe what they were expecting.
1: That is... Said so well. This used to be the most difficult conversation we had with patients, and this really was one of the most difficult consultations that that I that we used to have in general. <clears throat> the sixty year old presbyopia coming in for LASIK to get out of their bifocals. We um, now in our center, Gary. Uh, we have a, um, what we call an advanced ocular analysis center. It's an all digital analysis center that the patients kind of go through a digital track and, and uh, we um, uh, image their internal lens. So it's a dedicated digital lens analysis where we're looking at functional imaging as well as objective um, measurements and uh, um, to look at the quality of their lens, uh, the clarity. And we can actually capture light scatter with technology like the double-pass wavefront by Physiometrics. This is distributed by AccuFocus as the AccuTarget HD, Um, a very important advanced functional diagnostic test that shows us quality of vision and light scatter in ways that we can never see it. And we'll couple that with things like densitometry. We'll take a picture of the internal lens, um, and we will... Take a patient's on a tour of their eye, so we can actually show them. Instead of using <coughs> animation, we'll actually show them the different lenses in their eye. We'll show them how they're functioning by showing them the light scatter coming from the different sources. Uh, we'll sh- assign a score to their vision. Uh, you, you know, Herman Snellen described Snellen visual acuity in uh, the eighteen hundreds. And so this things have changed. We know that there's good quality 2020 and bad quality 2020. And so once we make a determination that this patient would be better served, uh, well, we identify that and we explain to the patient that they have I, um, that their dysfunctionality has progressed. and now is at a, a stage two dysfunctional end syndrome. And the first thing I say once their eyes get big because they look scared is, it's, guess what? It's okay. Congratulations, you're normal.
0: You're right. normal for your age. So <laughs> right. we, never, we
1: never want anybody feeling like, and, and I say, and, and by the way, you don't have to do anything. You know, there's just no, nothing worrisome about this. It's just part of aging. So we don't want anybody to feel scared and that feeling like they need to have a procedure. But remember, they came to you for surgery to get out of glasses.
0: Right. They came for a solution. They came seeking an answer.
1: For, they came for LASIK. Right. And so, um, so, in the past, when I said, well, you know, it, it makes more sense to do a lens exchange instead of LASIK, you know, they walk out thinking that this was crazy talk, you know, right. uh, they want to operate inside my eye and take out my lens. Now, the conversation has changed when I explain to them, I show them the dysfunctionality, I show them the uh, point spread function of the light falling on their retina with double pass wavefront with the visiometrics device. And when I then say, oh, and guess what? There's one other big benefit here um, that this also can prevent you from going on to have cataracts. Then that's when the, the bells go off for the patient.
0: Well, and I think, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a really huge benefit um, because especially if someone's going to be investing in advanced technology, the longer they're alive to utilize it, the more value they've actually given themselves. So. Exactly. I think that's a conversation, you know, when I talk to patients about, you know, their choices for upgrading their vision, upgrading to a premium lens, whether that's a TORIC or whether that's multifocal, my one thing I leave them with is is I say, you know, investing in your vision is the one investment you're guaranteed to use for every moment you're awake the rest of your life. You know, and when you think about that, what's that worth on a daily basis as someone? A dollar? Three dollars? Twenty dollars? Twenty dollars? You know, it's, the value that you provide is always way more than the price that we charge, no matter, no matter what you're charging. And I think that we don't always recognize that, but especially in those younger patients, they've got a long time to live and a long time to take advantage of the technology they're investing in.
1: I totally agree. You know, I um, actually I have a, a degree in economics, and we've studied this concept that was new at the time of passive use value. And it was trying to assign a value to something that that it really is you can't you can't assign a value to, and this, these are things that are are very difficult to quantify. And it's a perfect example of the 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 value that you can add to somebody's life and lifestyle and make um, really a wonderful change. And you know, the neat thing, the neat part of this conversation too, Gary, is that now we have access to femtosecond lasers for lens surgery. So, you know, these patients. And it's not just that they're coming in for laser. They're coming in for laser vision correction. So I just kind of put it in their terms when I take them on their digital tour of their eye. I point to their cornea on the, on the big screen and I'll say, you know, in the past, if you come in 15 years ago, 10 years ago, we would have done laser here. And that's what you came in thinking about. Um, but now we do laser here. Uh, and I'll point to their internal lens that's now dysfunctional, uh, stage two dysfunctionality. And, and so we can do laser on both levels. And then guess what? By the way, this one is permanent. It can also prevent cataracts. You won't need another procedure. If we did LASIK, we would need to do another procedure here in the future. And now the conversation's completely flipped to the point that I actually can't talk a patient out of it. And, and I have to be a little careful because if the patient has stage 1 and LASIK is indicated, if I start talking about stage two,
0: they're going to they want. Yeah, want to jump. Yeah. They're going to want to jump.
1: Right. And, and, but I think it's actually safer for them and less expensive. It makes more sense to actually have LASIK or an inlay. Right. Um, and so, you know, we, we're at the end of the day, we've got to be mindful of not giving them too much information to keep them focused, but it's just been wonderfully effective. Um, and you know, the ophthalmic community, um, uh, I think there's been, um, some uh, little controversy around using the term "dysfunctional" um, because of the 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 worry about patients getting concerned, but it's like all of things in medicine. You know, th- there is a there is a responsibility that we reassure our patients, we help them make the best decisions, we do what's best for them, but ultimately, these patients are coming in for a surgical correction. They're coming in for surgical correction. And my strong feeling on this is that if they have a stage 2 dysfunctional lens or whatever you want to call it, you're doing them a disservice by performing LASIK on them. And then bringing them back and doing a second surgery in the future where they may actually have limited um, uh, 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 selection for IOLs at that time or more difficult to hit their target or whatever. Um, and, And so... You know, this is it's, – it's really – caught. I mean, there were, I think, close to 30 uh, papers and uh, courses on dysfunctional end syndrome this year at ASCRS, and we were uh, fortunate uh, to get the base, best paper of the session for, for the grading scale that we just discussed uh, at, uh, for a paper uh, at ASCRS this year in New Orleans.
0: Well, and, and that's very well deserved, George. You you have really been the champion for this, and to be honest, it's made my conversation with patients so much easier. Basically, leaning on uh, the tips and pearls that you've passed along to me in conversations like this, but in, in different formats, you know. And I think, to be honest, we've we've basically just um, conceded defeat or accepted failure uh, treating presbyopia in the past to the point that. We, we really just lowered the bar for ourselves as ophthalmologists in terms of what we considered to be appropriate care or a successful treatment. But with the new technology, as things have, eva- has, have advanced, like what you've mentioned, the visiometrics uh, technology with the double wavefront pass, um, looking at scatter, looking at the dysfunctional lens index, for example, in the eye trace machine. Uh, which I found to be very helpful. Looking at other things like internal um, opacities. Th- these are all things that ophthalmologists in the past didn't have access to. And therefore it made those conversations a little bit more uh, gray. It wasn't quite as black and white, but we have so much better technology now. And we also have better solutions with better multifocal lenses. And I think better solutions are coming down the road. So To be honest, you know, I'm so happy with the AMO ZK Boo, their low ad. You know, I really feel like we now finally have multifocal lenses that will live up to the hype, and I, you know, I don't hesitate offering that to patients who are in this this category, and I really do feel like they can, like I said, they can live up to the hype. So I want to thank you for the work you've done in not only figuring out the diagnostics, but helping, you know, shape the conversation, it's made it much easier for, for patients like my, or sorry, doctors like myself taking care of patients who are in this category.
1: Well, Gary, thanks so much. You know, it's, um, it's, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's the data, um, number one and number two, it's doing what's best for our patients. And, you know, for, for, for years, we, uh, patients were basically said, well, you know, it's, it's okay. You've got a pre cataract. It's not ripe enough to do anything. And so, uh, they would wait for a decade and wear their glasses and not see great and not do anything. And, you know, it just, when they're coming to you asking for help, and we can improve their quality of vision and reduce their dependence on spectacles like they're asking for, you know, this whole dismissive concept of a pre-cataract just really did not make sense in terms of what we feel is best for the patient. And that's, again, where the, the concept of dysfunctional end syndrome uh, came in uh, into play. And so we set forth to try to... to, 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 to to, to build a, a database to show that this works and we've been able to uh, to show and you know, we've presented this uh, uh, in, in numerous abstracts um, that we can improve quality of vision with uh, dysfunctional lens replacement or refractive lens exchange it, because these are not clear lenses this is not clear lensectomy and these are not cataracts these are not patients that have their daily activities affected and so Compared to LASIK, we are able to improve quality of vision um, and still meet the uh, primary objectives of reducing their dependence on glasses. But now we're, we're improving visual performance, and, and we can measure this objectively with image quality on the retina in ways that we've never been able to think about before. So, um, you know, the, the, the conversation is evolving. And it's, you know, we just, you know, we sure appreciate the, the, the interest and, and the opportunity to, to talk about uh, this exciting new sub sub specialty. We're actually looking at um, starting a fellowship in the Surgical Correction of Presbyopia.
0: Well, when you start that fellowship, uh, please send me an application. So uh, I would love to learn, uh, learn from you, to be honest. It would be an incredible experience. So, so listen, George, with that being said, uh, I think that the State of the Union is, uh, is very, very uh, bright for presbyopia correction. Um, I think that going forward, we're going to have even, even more options for all the stages of presbyopia. And uh, maybe we can have uh, another conversation next year and do this on an annual basis where we, we sort of go through what's new and, and what's coming. How's that sound?
1: You know, that sounds fabulous, particularly with um, the extended depth of focus lenses that are just right around the corner. That's going to take this to a whole nother level where, where the contrast is, is not being sacrificed and the visual performance is enhanced uh, at, at all different distances. And I think we just have so much to look forward to. I totally agree with your assessment that the, uh, the future is very bright uh, for what we're doing and, and helping our patients.
0: Awesome, George. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for talking to me today about presbyopia. This has been Dr. Gary words for ophthalmology off the grid. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of ophthalmology off the grid. Send us your thoughts on this episode by tweeting at itube.net or emailing us at OOTG at BMCToday.com until next time. This episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid is sponsored by Centurion from Alcon.